My name is Pastor Peter Brunton. I am the lead pastor here at Northwest Church, and we're so glad that you are able to be with us today, and I hope that you will you feel blessed to be together, join together. We miss you guys. We really do miss you guys. We can't wait to get back together once again. Today, I'm going to say a few things. But first of all, I want to start off with saying this. I am a racist. I am also an adulterer. I'm also a murderer. According to what Jesus said, if you look at a woman in your heart and you lust, then you've already committed adultery with her. He also said in Matthew chapter 5 that anyone who commits murder is subject to punishment. And he said, and even if you hate your brother in your heart, you're subject to the same punishment. I've admitted in my life to the last two of those things that, yep, I probably lusted in my heart and I've had hatred in my heart too. But I don't know that I've ever really admitted to any type of racism in my life. And yet right after when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, that if you have hatred in your heart, then you might as well have murdered your brother. He goes on to say, and I tell you, if you say raka to your brother, which is R-A-C-A, which literally means To think of someone as a mindless piece of trash. A mindless, worthless piece of trash. And he said, I tell you, there is hellfire waiting for you if you've ever felt that for your brother. When I grew up in Scotland, as most of you know, if you haven't been able to tell by my accent alone. And I'll be honest, there has been... A fear and an anger and a an hatred to a country that really dominated us when we were growing up. You see, as you probably know, maybe you don't know, but the geography of where I come from is that there's three countries in one in Great Britain. There is England, there's Scotland, and there's Wales. And we all had our own land. We all had our own corner of the Great Britain country. But really, I knew that, that as I was growing up that there was a felt history within myself. And don't get me wrong, I have so many good English friends. In fact, some of my mentors have been English. I love English people. But there's a felt history that we have felt growing up as uh, Scots that, 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 that there was a domination that England often had over us. In fact, around about the time when America was creating and, and, and finding its independence as a country, just before that, we had just, as a country ourselves, as Scotland, we had just been conquered by England. And maybe some of you have even seen the movie Braveheart. And you've seen the movie Braveheart about how the, the English conquered Scotland, but we had our wild, brave warriors. What you probably don't know is that 
they conquered us in such a way that they took away our identity, they took away our national dress, our kilts, they took away our language. I don't even speak my native language, Gaelic, which is now trying to make a comeback in Scotland. We, we had our clans taken away, our, even many of our names were taken away. But what was even worse is that we were thrown off of our lands because it was, it was more beneficial to actually raise sheep on our lands because they could make more money. So they kicked our, my, 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 my family, my ancestors off of their land. And, and even quite a few years ago, we went back there to see where my mother's family came from. And we found a plaque on a wall in a museum that listed all of my ancestors that had been thrown off of their lands. And that's why many of them actually moved to Canada and to Scotland, sorry, to America. Because we had suffered the injustice ourselves. And every time when I was growing up, when I saw England flex their muscle over Scotland, either politically or even uh, 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 in, in finance or in business or whatever it was, there was a sense of, of resentment that would come up in your heart because you always felt dominated by your bigger brother. I'm not here to equate what has happened in this country with what has happened to me or to my country. I don't equate it with what happened with American slavery in the history of this country. My point is this, it's way easier to feel what has been done to me than to recognize what I have maybe done to other people. And I'm sure that many of you are in the exact same place too. You feel the pain of what has been done to you but to be actually able to say, no, wait a second, I too am a racist. I too have, have called my fellow brother Raka, you mindless, worthless piece of trash. Many of us have even said it about our politicians. We've said it about our friends. We've said it about those that may be more powerful than us, more or even weaker than us, but we've had that disease in our heart. And today, Today, I'm repenting of my own racism. Some of you might think, Peter, why would you do this? Because it's time and it's needed. You might be thinking, but Peter, you don't need to apologize for something you've not really done. Let me tell you. Jesus apologized for something he never did and he was innocent. I am not innocent and how much more should I be like Christ and apologize for the things that are maybe deep in my heart but I've never necessarily accepted them. There's a collective anger in our country right now and there's a collective mourning for the murder of one man who is only one of many men and women. And today, I want to address quite a few things today. And the chances are, maybe you might be uncomfortable. The chances are, maybe some things you're not going to agree with me on, or even maybe there's a chance that you're so deeply angry, you can't hear me out on this, but I want you, I'm going to ask you to follow me on this and then decide where are you and where are we as a church at? Recently, we had Bishop Robinson, Sylvester Robinson, who we have become very good friends with as a church, who's become 
um, mentoral role in my life and I'd asked him, what do we do about this? And he said two things. Number one, listen to those that are hurting. And number two, you just be honest today. So today, I'm calling today Honesty Sunday because I'm going to be as honest as I can about what I think and what I feel about this. Now, let me make clear three different things before I jump into any of my main points. The first one is this, that George's murder was disgusting and reprehensible. Some have even said that I didn't care because I didn't speak out in the way that they wanted me to speak out. I'm telling you today, it's not true. It is disgusting and it is reprehensible. The second thing I would say, and a precursor to my main points, is that racism is wrong, it's disgusting, and it's reprehensible, and we do not support it. We don't support it. Even if you think any of my silence has said that I do, I don't. The third thing I would say, is I have been waiting for this moment for 24 years. That's how long I've been in this country. I remember the first time I came to this country and I could feel there was a difference going on. There was good differences, but there was a lot of bad differences. I had a very good friend who was a white guy and he grew up around black people. And any time I was around him, he became a different person when he was around black people. And I could see the cultural differences. I could see the language differences. I could see the, the, the way that he handled himself around those people. But then I could also see the strain that he had trying to flip between acting white and then even acting black around his black friends. I saw this division that had existed in this country and I didn't know what to do. But the more I learned about it, the more I started to discover that this is a 400-year-old curse of racism and hatred that will not be easily broken by anybody in this country. It's a 400-year-old curse. And I am scared and I am sobered of how powerful this demonic power is in this country to divide. Last year, my wife and I took our children in an RV trip all the way up the eastern seaboard of America because we wanted to go and feel where these historic moments had happened. And we went to Charleston and we went and saw the, the, the slavery markets and it was the eeriest feeling I'd felt in a long time and I didn't know what to do with it. I even went to all these different civil war sites and I went to, I remember going to Gettysburg and I could just feel the trauma and the, 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 what had happened in that very field. And we went to other places as well. And I just remember feeling the division that was there. I remember feeling the, the, the angst that was going on. But there was one thing that I noticed when I was there. And it was this, that hundreds of thousands of white people that would die to kill slavery was never enough. And you're probably even asking the question of how many black men will it take to die on the street and black women will it take to die on the street until it's enough? I'm here to tell you it will never be enough. 
Because to break this curse, there is only one man that can die to break this curse in our country. Only one death can make a difference. And we know who that is. It's Jesus Christ. How many have died? And yet only one needed to die. So why didn't I talk about the death of George Floyd sooner? Well, I need to talk about two things here. Firstly is, I was on vacation. And that would seem like, well, that's great. So what? Get off your right, your rich white butt and speak up. Here's the thing. This rich white butt has been working itself off for the last nine months. And I knew we were getting burned out. And I had to promise my wife and my children we were meant to actually be in Scotland for quite a few weeks and that all got cancelled and the, with, the, with the goodness of the remotes that had actually given us five days away to just go and relax. We, I promised my wife and my children that we are not going to do ministry. We are going to just cut ourselves off and I'm going to not do ministry. And I'll tell you right now, I'm not looking for sympathy at all, but I will tell you, I will choose my wife and my children over you any day. Because my marriage and my ability to father my children is more important than anything I can do as a pastor. I'll tell you right now, I saw my father die young in his life and I believe it's because he gave himself too much to ministry. Ministry burned himself out. And I don't want to become that pastor. The second reason of why I didn't even speak out last Sunday it's simply because we had pre-recorded last Sunday, even before George had gotten murdered. Why did we do that? Because my team was burning out. I have a very small team right now trying to make what we do on a Sunday available for you. And so it was pre-recorded. As soon as everything happened and you find well, this could really make us look bad. I'm willing for it to make me look bad as long as it protects my team. Now, there are three main points that I want to talk about today. Three main points of questions that I want to answer. The first one is this. What have I done wrong? Where have we not gone well? What have I not done wrong? Firstly, I would say is I probably, and I know I have not communicated well enough how much I care for you. Now, maybe you could be a personality flaw or a character flaw, but you need to know that I will always work harder to spread the care to more people as best as I can in this human flesh that I have. Yet I firmly believe that we as a church, you as a church community, you mostly do a phenomenal job. What you as a church do to love other people is amazing. Through the Lovely Project, through IGM, through the dance studio, through our mission work into other countries, through mentorships that we do from young to old, through Choices Clinic that we support, through Jobs Partnership that you financially support, through the kids' work that we do in this community. What you do is absolutely amazing. But it doesn't mean it's enough. And I'm willing to admit it's not enough. And I want to do more. I also haven't communicated well enough that I do want to hear what you have to say. Personally, 
when it comes to racism and black and white stuff, I don't know what to say. There's often a fear within us where that, that is, is too scared to say something that is a tension between family members. And I'm talking about national family members here. There's a tension that comes. And so therefore, it's like, if I say something, then it will upset the apple cart and we'll lose the relationship because I'll say it in such a way that hurts you or you disagree with me on. And now we separate ourselves. But actually, we probably don't need to agree on everything. My good friend Gary White said to me last week, he said, you know, Saying you don't know is enough of a start. But not saying anything hurts your spiritual children. I'm willing to admit I've not said enough. And if you want to talk to me, I would love to talk to you. Give me a call. I'll pay for lunch. <laughs> I want to talk. What else have I done wrong? I think I haven't affirmed that there has been injustice for black people in this country. In fact, I know it. Honestly, again, I don't know what I'm doing. This curse is huge. It's a 400-year-old curse. We had the bishop over the other night speaking to all of our leaders, our, our main leaders here. And one of the things that he said that really struck me, he said, saying black lives matter doesn't mean that no other life does matter. If we all have beautiful houses and your house is beautiful, my house is beautiful, my friend's house is beautiful, everyone's house is beautiful, but my house is on fire, I'm going to say, my house matters. And I'm here to affirm and confirm that that is true. Your life does matter. And I recognize that racism is also an issue for Latinos, for Asians, for those from the islands, from those that are Native American Indians, and even for some of us who are white as well. But today we say that your life as a black person, as a black community, it does matter. And it matters to me. It matters from the womb to the grave. Every black life matters from the womb to the grave. Here's the second question I have today. Is what am I mad at? Because I want you to understand this is not an apology tour for me. But I hope that this is a relationship building venture for me. And as Bishop Robinson told me to just simply be as honest as I can, I'm going to be as honest as I can about what I am mad at as well. And the first one that I'm mad at is that I am mad at how the world treats each other. The hatred, the disdain, the virtue signaling, the political one-upmanship, the murders, the brutality, the sexual abuse, the fatherlessness. I've seen it all over the world. And I'm mad at that. But that's what I expect from the world that does not bow their knee to Jesus. I'm used to it. I'm used to seeing how people treat each other. Because until they can make Christ their King and their Lord and their Savior, they will always fight each other. The Bible says that. And it says that this stuff will increase in the last days. So I'm expecting it. 
But the second thing that I'm mad at is that I am mad at how brilliant Satan is to set ourselves against each other. He has had the exact same plan to steal, to kill and destroy as Jesus told us in John chapter 10 verse 10. And it's still happening today. From the beginning of time, when he was able to turn two brothers against each other, Cain and Abel, he was able to stir up this plan to make us fight each other. And the adversary has been doing this for thousands of years. His plan and his skills are brilliant. And we most often fall to it time and time again. The last thing that I'm mad about is this. I'm mad at the church. I'm mad at how we don't know how to move in the power of the Holy Spirit in the way that we should. We don't know how to fix racism because we don't know how to even speak with power at the right time. We think we're speaking with power, but when we don't get the results, then that's not the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm mad that we don't even know how to see miracles in our land. We don't know how to pray for someone like Phil, uh, Josh Weekly, who has a, a tumor in his brain. And we don't know how to lay hands on his head and see that tumor disappear. We don't know how to move in the power of the spirit that Jesus gave us and do greater things than he did as he told us to. I'm mad that we don't have the passion to see people saved like we say we do. When was the last time you evangelized? We seem to depend more on a Facebook advertisement to get people to our church than we do on our own people to get out there and tell someone about Jesus. Heck, we can't even turn up to church on time to worship together. If we don't even fear God to worship him together, how are we ever going to have the power to see racism broken? Hello? Think about that for a moment. If you can't even be on time to worship with your brothers and sisters, how are you ever going to see God move in this land? He is the one who we need. He's the power that we need. He's the one that we must honor. We had Pastor Ted from Canada in February. He was actually meant to preach here, but he got a kidney stone. So he was stuck in my house for a week. And we counted it as a privilege, didn't we? Because we got to speak with him every day. And I asked him, I said, Pastor Ted, you travel across the world. He's in his 70s and he's still traveling across the world from India to Canada to, to Africa to, to all across America, South America. And I said, what do you see in the churches across America today? What do you see? And he said this, churches in America are more concerned about the presentation of God than they are about the presence of God. He said, people can't turn up to church on time anymore. It's something I've been seeing for years about our church. I've been mad about the fact that I have to make sure the coffee is perfect in case people get upset and don't like the experience of church. 
I'm mad that I've heard of people who have not decided to stay in our church simply because the check-in process for the children's church wasn't smart enough or fast enough. And so they decided to go somewhere else. They decided to choose another experience instead of saying, God, where do you want me to be? I'm sick and tired of that as a pastor. And I want to give my best as a pastor and as a church, but I'm sick and tired of trying to win people who really care more about their experience than they do about the salvation of the souls around them. Where is your heart? I would love it if you would come earlier before the band in an expectation of crying out for God that we don't need to wait for a cool song to play before we decide to cry out and worship for the presence of God. I'm mad that Christians fillet their friendships online instead of call them up. Stop it. Jesus said this, he said in Matthew 18, verse 20, he says, where two or three are gathered, that's where I am. Who is Jesus? He is the reconciler. And he said to us, I am only there when you're face-to-face reconciling. He didn't say when you post it on the internet, now I'll bring reconciliation. No, it's when it's face-to-face. This month is all meant to be about our mission as a church, which is gather, grow, and go. And that's the type of church that we want to be. We want to be the type of church that does gather together for reconciliation, and we grow in the changing of our hearts, and then we go out and we become the reconciliation ministry of Jesus Christ in our communities. It's time for us to reject our white culture, our black culture, our Latino culture, and only live in the kingdom of God culture, the Jesus culture that needs to bind us together. It doesn't mean you're no longer black or white or brown or purple or yellow. It simply means that I am a part of the kingdom first. Here's my last question today. What does God want from us? Because at the end of the day, regardless of what I think or feel, it only matters what he wants from us. Theologians have said over the years that there's one scripture in the Old Testament that sums up everything of what God wants. And as many of you have probably known it, it's in Micah chapter 6. And we're going to be reading from verse 6 all the way to verse 8. And it says this. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With amazing worship songs? With calves a year old? Should I give more money to the church? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? If I give the most fruitful and fertile parts of my life, will he be pleased with that, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Or maybe should I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? But no, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, 
and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I have a very simple thing to say to you today. And this will apply for everyone in any position that you're in. Hear me now. Two out of three is not good enough. Think about it. Even if you haven't acted justly, even if you have all the mercy in the world and you love people and you try to become as religious as you can with God, to walk with him and to stay in his precepts, studying it day and night, if you don't know how to act justly, it's not good enough. Maybe you have a super overdeveloped sense of justice and you know how to act justly. And you know how to seek God and to do everything you can to serve Him, but you don't know how to love mercy. You don't have love in your heart. Two out of three isn't good enough. Cardinal Bergoglio said this, that struck me. He said, truth might be vital, but without love, it is unbearable. And I hope that the truth that we move into as a church to try and become the hands in Christ, the feet of Christ, that will be a useful tool in the hands of the Spirit of God to help break the curse of a 400-year-old curse on this land. I pray that it will always be done with love because I believe that's the only way we will ever be able to move forward. Bishop Robin said to me the other day, be honest. So today, I'm being honest about what I'm wrong about, about what I'm mad about, and about what I'm committed to. I'm all in. Are you all in? Or will you dig yourself in to your opinions, to your hearts, to your fears? to your political position? Or will you say, I choose Christ. I choose my brother and my sister. Next week, we're going to have the bishop here because I want to hear what he's got to say about what we should do as a church. Father God, we want to thank you for this opportunity to wake this church up to be an opportunity to see the power of the Holy Spirit do something through us and in us like we have never seen before. We make ourselves broken before the cross because we are sinners saved by grace. And we don't want to talk about it, we want to be about it. Give us the wisdom, lead us in your righteousness to the right next steps so that when the day comes and we will die, we will look back and be able to tell our children we gave our best. We put our God first. We put the presence of the Lord first. Father, I pray you would touch every person in their home right now to sense the presence 
that is like the healing oil of Gilead that heals our hearts and empowers our hands to be put to work. Lord, I pray this generation will be known as the generation that woke up. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. Ask God to forgive you right now. We love you and we miss you. May God bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. We love you guys.